Well, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn in them to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. We hear uh, in this passage, Jesus answers in a wonderful way the question that we'll be considering from our Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 8. So John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Uh, please pay careful attention for, again, this is God's word to us. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. We'll pray that the Lord would uh, write this word upon our hearts once again this morning. If you turn in your order of worship now to our confessional reading, we'll be considering this morning Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, question and answer 8, uh, boys and girls. Lord's Day 3, question and answer 8. I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question eight asks this, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Well, as you know, this catechism is broken down into three divisions which follow Paul's epistles, or many of Paul's epistles, like Romans. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Very, very important paradigm that is helpful in many ways. And we are currently considering the guilt portion of this catechism. If you recall so far, we have looked at how the law of God, one of the uses of the law of God is it functions as a mirror. It exposes us of our sin and our misery. As we look into perfection, we see our imperfection. One of the benefits of the gospel then is that Christ stands in front of us so that when we look into the mirror, we are righteous in Christ's righteousness. But then we also looked uh, and considered that original relationship that God had with Adam, 
oftentimes referred to as a covenant of works. Adam was called to work. And there was promise of blessing or curse attached to that work. This is the same relationship that God had with Jesus when he was sent into this earth. Then last week, we looked at question and answer seven and looked specifically at the origin of our depravity. Where does sin and depravity come from? We looked from Romans chapter five all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles and how sin entered this world through one man, Adam. And in Adam's sin, we are all implicated. His guilt becomes our guilt. His corruption becomes our corruption. Catechism uses the language of a poisoned nature. That's what happens to us. We have poisoned natures. And now the question answered before us is fleshing out the implications of that poisoned nature that we all have because of Adam. So to rephrase the question that's before us, uh, you could think of it like this. Uh, The catechism is asking us, can those who are in Adam, who have not tasted the blessing of the Spirit yet, those are in Adam in the flesh, who have the sinful nature, can they do good things? Can those who are in Adam do good things? Now, if that question came to you with no preparation, what's your gut reaction? No, yes. All right, mixed response, that's good. What was that? Things earthly, things heavenly. Things earthly, things heavenly. Well, I'd like us to look specifically at John chapter 3 and see how Jesus answers this question because I think he does in a very helpful way. So John chapter 3, as you see from the very beginning of this passage, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, boys and girls, a Pharisee was essentially a, a, a teacher of God's law. You think of like a professor today. His calling, his earthly calling, was devoted to studying God's law. And more than that, they were also devoted to keeping God's law. That's what they did, their job description. Nicodemus had a especially prestigious position. He was a ruler among, among the Pharisees. And we're told then that this Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. We're not told why, but it probably is because he doesn't want his colleagues finding out that he's going to Jesus for, uh, with, with questions and for advice. He cares about his reputation. He doesn't want to be criticized. And so he goes to Jesus at night. And then in verse 3, we read, and Jesus answered him. And you might be thinking, well, he didn't ask a question. What is Jesus answering? So John doesn't tell us the question that Nicodemus either explicitly asked or which was on his mind and Jesus just perceptively picked up. But either way, I think we can deduce a possible response to, or a possible um, um, question that Nicodemus was either implicitly or explicitly asking. And it may be what the rich young ruler was asking in Matthew 19. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do, to use the language even of the parable this morning, uh, to enter the gate of God's kingdom? How can I, who am a sinner, go across that chasm into the kingdom of God? 
And so in verse three and five, we get explicit answers to that question. How can I, who have a poison nature, enter the kingdom of God? Verse three and verse five, we read, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verse five, he says very much the same thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, based in in those two verses, what significant words stand out to you? Verse three and verse five. Unless. Unless. That's repeated in both, both, both verses. Any other words repeated in both of those verses? Cannot. Exactly. Cannot. Anything else that's repeated? Free will. Free will. Well, that's definitely there, not explicitly. You'll notice that he says both times, truly, truly. And boys and girls, this, this means pay attention. Pay attention, this is important. It's like your teacher saying, this is going to be on the test. You might want to be taking, it, p- taking notes. Truly, truly, amen, amen, meaning pay attention. You, you need to hear this. He says that uh, with both verses. But that language of unless and that language of cannot is very important. What Jesus is saying is that in our natural fallen state, before we have experienced any blessing of the Spirit, we are unable to breach that chasm. We are unable to enter or even see the kingdom of God based in our our fallen state. Paul says very much the same thing. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verses seven through eight. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In the flesh, same thing as being in Adam, sinful nature. Notice Paul says the very same thing. He says, in the flesh, you cannot submit to God's law. In the flesh, you cannot please God. Jesus says really the same thing, but he uses the language of the kingdom of God. One cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. I said this morning in, in, in the first service, for those of us who have Adam as our father, we have sinful natures. We naturally suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So, again, boys and girls, if, if fish swim, if birds fly, sinful human beings suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's just what they do. It's natural to them. And so this means, getting back to that original question, and I know there's a mixed response, yes, no, can, can those who are in Adam do good things? We have to distinguish, right? There's not really a simple yes-no answer because what this is telling us, both Paul and Jesus, is that we can do ultimate good. Those who are in Adam can do relative good, and we can can list many examples of how non-Christians do relatively good things, meaning they do good things that benefit society, but they're not ultimately good because the telos of those actions is not the glory of God. The main motivation is their own glory or some other glory. It's not God's glory, and therefore it can't be referred to as ultimately good. And so this doctrine is oftentimes referred to as total inability. One aspect of our poison nature, our total depravity, is that we are totally unable to choose the good. We are totally unable to do ultimate 
good things. One of those things would be entering the kingdom of God, pleasing God ultimately, submitting to God's law. So as Micah said, this brings up the issue of free will, right? That's the million dollar question people have when this topic is addressed. So I guess based on this passage, do we have free will? Do those in Adam who have not been born again, do they have free will? Tony? Great answer. <laughs> um, well, I, I look at uh, free will also in the perspective of the dominion that God has given us. Hmm. We have dominion over the things of the earth, and so that that dominion implies that we have a free will. We have a choice to make. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the matters of heaven, we do not. Good. No, I appreciate you guys' dialogue. It, like many issues, a lot of this depends on how you define terms. So we don't have free will in the sense that we don't have the ability to act contrary to our nature. We have the freedom to act within the bounds of our nature, but we don't have the ability to act contrary to our nature. And so in that sense, those who are in Adam, if you define free will as the ability to act, to make decisions contrary to your nature, we don't have free will. Those in Adam who have not been born again don't have free will. Again, think of the analogy of of even the animal kingdom, right? Birds or fish, they can only do fish-like things. You tell a fish to to grow legs and live and breathe and walk on land, anthropomorphically, they're going to look at you with a confused face. Fish do fish-like things. Birds do bird-like things. And so this makes sense. If our nature is depraved, sinful, we have freedom to do lots of things within the bounds of our nature. You think of Romans 1, when Paul lists all of these sins that those who are in the flesh, not been born again, are doing, God is not coercing and saying, yeah, I'm going to make you an adulterer. I'm going to make you an idolater. I'm going to make you a, a theft. No, they have freedom. They're choosing their form of depravity. They're acting within the bounds of their nature. And so... Uh, So that distinction is helpful. We don't have the power of contrary choice. Acting contrary to our nature, we have only the ability to act within the confines of our nature. And think about it this way. God doesn't have free will, according to this definition. He can't act contrary to his nature. He can't choose evil. Yes, Tony. Maybe you mentioned this already, but in Adam himself, before the fall? Yeah, so he was the example of someone with if you want to if you want to talk about someone who had free will or the closest resemblance of free will it was him he could choose good or choose evil and even us in our regenerate state we now have we're not exactly like adam but we now we have a sinful nature but now by the spirit we have this new man within us and we can please god not perfectly We can't perfectly keep the law of God, but we can put forward uh, the small beginning of true obedience that our catechism says. So yeah, that's a helpful distinction to look back at Adam, 
us just in a fallen state, us in a regenerate state. And the, but what we're looking forward to is a time where we won't have free will at all. And that's a good thing. It'll be impossible for us to sin in the new creation. I would add that the yeah. covenant itself, just the Hebrew term really had a stronger emphasis on binding, mm -hmm. things being bound. I mean, you know, so many imageries throughout the scripture, like two sticks being tied together when John's talking yeah. about Israel and Judah, you know, just, just binding things together mm -hmm. um, is good imagery. Yeah, yeah. So this is one aspect of our poison nature. In Adam, in the flesh, we can only act within the bounds of our nature. If our nature is depraved, that's not good news for us when it comes to entering or seeing the kingdom of God. So in verse 3 and verse 5, what is God's, Jesus' solution, answer to this predicament that we're in? Being born again. Born again. Both verses, he says, unless you are born again, the kingdom of God is not in your future. That is the answer. Nicodemus, of course, was completely confused at this point. What? How am I supposed to go in my mother's womb again? He's thinking of physical rebirth. Jesus is speaking in a spiritual sense. We need, as we heard in our liturgy earlier, Ezekiel 11, I will put new hearts in you. Take out the heart of stone and the heart of flesh. Jesus is referring to that very thing, the removal of our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. So boys and girls, this, this language of being born again or new birth is, is referring to the spirit of God changing our hearts, giving us new hearts that for the first time ever are able to embrace Christ by faith. Again, to use that, that analogy of, of, of fish, right? Like if, if we as those in Adam are like fish, we do fish-like things. And that is, say, all we can do is sin. God in his word calls us to be humans and walk upright and talk and breathe. That's like the life of, of according to God's law. Well, how do you do that? How can a fish go to becoming a human? That's God calling us to circumcise our hearts. That's God calling us to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. How do people who have poisoned natures in Adam do that? Well, that's where we see God does in the gospel what the law cannot accomplish. The law cannot accomplish what it demands. Only God in the gospel can do this. The law says circumcise your hearts. It doesn't give a remedy for how that can be done. And that's why Jesus had to come. He comes and makes that a reality. And the experience of our salvation it begins with this idea of being born again. As I said this morning, 1 John 5.1 says, if you believe, you've been born again. So if you are here today and you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, that's evidence that this work has already begun in your heart. The only reason you believe and have the inclination is because the Spirit has, has given you a new heart. Well, then you'll see in verse 8, uh, John, uh, Jesus continues to, to explain the nature of the Spirit. And he says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Here, uh, Jesus is saying something very, very important about the work of the Spirit. He's analogizing it with the wind. So in that culture, you didn't have weathermen. 
and they probably could predict weather patterns to some degree, but not, not very well. And they probably would What's wake changed? up. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You wake up one day and you have 20 mile an hour winds, the next day it's calm. The wind has a mind of its own. You can't manipulate the wind. The wind, as it were, stands as authority above you. It does what it wishes. And that's the analogy Jesus gives for the spirit. We can't manipulate the spirit. We can't contain the spirit, put the spirit in a box, as it were. The spirit acts according to his will, as it were. Well, I guess to put this within the context of Christian traditions, Rome would be one example of, of seeking to manipulate the spirit. So the Roman Catholic interpretation of this passage would say that in verse 5, when we are told that you, we need to be born of the water and the spirit, they would tie the work of the spirit to the waters of baptism. So that every time a baby is baptized, they are automatically experiencing the waters of new birth. It just happens. magic. It's automatic. It's like when you wash your face, it's automatic. So too in the waters of baptism, it's not just your external body being washed, your soul is washed of original sin, no matter what. The waters of baptism. Well, I think off, uh, you, you go to the other end of the spectrum, the evangelical church, think of like the praise and worship setting, oftentimes they, they kind of do the same thing, but they, they substitute the sacrament of the Eucharist with the sacrament of, of, of the praise band. Imagine, it's fictitious, but imagine someone in such a setting comments after a church service, um, boy, the, the spirit was really at work today. Yeah. But then you put them in our church and you're singing psalms to a piano with 40 or 50 people, they probably might comment and say, boy, that church is dead, void of the spirit. And what they're betraying is a conviction that the spirit, instead of being tied to the waters of baptism, is tied to the chords of a guitar or an instrument or the vocal chords of a performer. Really, what's changed? Well, you've gotten more biblical in your singing, but that's somehow void of the spirit. And so we have to realize we can't manipulate the spirit. That's Jesus' main point here. We can't say it's automatically going to work based on doing X, Y, or Z. It's not a formula that we can just follow and boom, out comes the work of the Spirit. That's important to know. But at the same time, we also have to know that the Spirit ordinarily works through the Word. That's what 1 Peter 1.23 says. It says that since we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Ordinarily, new birth happens through the ministry of the Word. Now, not automatically. Now, if, if it was automatic, then that actually would be, uh, I, I would, well, if it was automatic, then every street, pre every time a street, a street preacher is preaching and his words are entering the ears of those on the street, salvation, new birth is happening. It's automatic, right? Every time the word is heard, everyone in the audience is automatically born again. But again, we know that's, not the case. The Spirit works ordinarily through the Word, but there's a mystery, mysterious element to the work of the Spirit. It doesn't always, it's not always effectual to every hearer, and you see that throughout biblical history. Why didn't, uh, in the parable, the five brothers, why weren't they hearing? I mean, they, we can presume they, audibly, they, they heard 
the word, meaning it went through their ears, but they weren't really hearing with faith and repentance. Well, why? Well, the Spirit wasn't at work. Well, why? Well, there's a mysterious element to that. And sometimes we know the Spirit works apart from the word. Think of John the Baptist. He was given new birth in his mother's womb. So we have to be careful. It ordinarily works through the word, but we can't tie the spirit down. And, and it, this, part of this is the secret will of God that we've not been given the, uh, the, a detailed plan of the spirit beyond stay close to the word. Ordinarily, the spirit and the word go together. So if you want to experience the effects of the spirit, go to the word. Go to Christ. So here in John chapter 3, uh, if you go back, if we think back to that question, we see, are we, are we totally unable to do good, inclined, inclined towards all evil? Yes, in our natural fallen state, in Adam, in the flesh, we cannot choose the good. We can't act contrary to our nature, and that's why this new birth is absolutely necessary. One last thing I'd like to say is that we also have to realize that the Spirit's work oftentimes occurs in an ordinary way. One of the blessings of, of growing up as a covenant child is that oftentimes you may not know the, the time or the day when you were given new birth. You just kind of always have believed and known about Christ and there's been many different periods of life where you've grown in your faith. And that's a good thing. Oftentimes the Spirit works in us in ordinary ways. It's the ordinary means of grace. And in Scripture, we're never told to pinpoint the moment of rebirth. Rather, we're always told to believe. So we, we ultimately never know when that moment of rebirth has occurred for, for ourselves or anybody else. Part of that's the, the mystery of God's hidden will. But we are called to belief, and that's what we are to focus on. We are called to faith, and we are called to persevere in faith.